Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. Chapter 4 in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Fantasy. To address the magnificent pleasures of the Jane Russell Marilyn Monroe vehicle, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, directed by Howard Hawks from 1953, requires that we pause a moment and consider the various sociocultural and historical influences impacting the moment. The generation of adults who participated in World War II were keen on the idea of civic responsibility. After the war was done, all of the difficulties suffered for many people turned inward to a private enterprise of building families and all of that entails with neighborhoods, with cities, townships, and counties. All of that coincides with a massive new number of people, the baby boom generation, born from 1946 to 1964. And this country, as well as major countries across the world, were not ready. Layette was not produced on that scale. Nipples for bottles were not produced on this scale. Prams were not produced on this scale. And suddenly all of that had to enter production very quickly to service this body of young people. Now, an aside. When a person becomes a parent, all of their free time... All of their energy and generally most of their wealth gets piled into trying to support that child, which means a person's sense of leisure time, sense of escape, of entertainment, tends to center on the home because you want to pursue things you can do with the children in tow. Television lands in the middle of that landscape at just the perfect time when mass entertainment aimed at a mass audience of multi-generations of people could gather around the boob tube with screens that would sometimes be 10 or 11 whole inches across or smaller in black and white imagery through gigantically ornate cabinets in the corner of a room for an evening's entertainment. Once a person purchased the television set, which was indeed expensive, from that point forward, watching it was largely free. And that's in contrast to all the troubles of going out into public life, to attend a concert, to go watch theater, to attend a movie. 
which for many adults would involve having to leave the children with a babysitter, having to drive into town, find parking, perhaps get a meal, which suddenly means your wallet is being bled out at the very same moment you need to supply your child with food, diapers, and clothes just to make it to tomorrow. So, by the time we enter the 1950s, movie producers in Hollywood, as a leading example, were attempting to figure out ways they might cause people to want to leave home and go to the show in a movie theater, especially when there were so many leisure activities that would cause people to not go to movies and stay at home to watch TV, go outside and take a walk, do a game of pickup baseball at the local middle school, what have you. One thing that Hollywood did, which gentlemen prefer blondes, showcases, is Technicolor imagery from 20th Century Fox. Technicolor is a three-strip color process to enrich a saturated view of certain colors like yellow and red and green, which were literally not possible on a TV screen at home. Add to that, showcasing those colors in a spread of costumes and set designs that are expressed across the bodies of two of the most conventionally beautiful women of the time, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, who play a couple of nightclub entertainers doing song and dance routines as their way to earn money, while each of them are looking for male companionship. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes also makes evident a trend that there were known to be certain forms of entertainment which were most useful for a small screen on television at home, involving a lot of close-ups, a fair amount of conversation, a lot of static camera work, and what we would now call the sitcom or the game show, or a concert event where a camera would simply watch performers do a thing without a lot of montage, cutting, or editing. This contrasts with what is possible on the big screen. And remember, when I say the big screen, I'm talking about something that would be tens of yards horizontally in distance, perhaps tens of yards tall, so that when a person sits in a theater space of perhaps 300 to 500, even 1,000 seats all around, the screen is so super big that it is indeed spectacular and overwhelming. And on that screen, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, we have musical numbers. We have dancing. But we also have all of this sumptuous production design, which allows us, as viewers going to the show, leaving our kids at home, maybe with a babysitter, doing all of this so that we can travel the world. And we do travel the world. We begin in the American East Coast. We get on an ocean liner. We go to France. We bum around Paris just a little bit. And all along the way, we watch these two clothes horses, Russell and Monroe, change costume constantly while dropping innuendo and double entendre as they deal with various menfolk surrounding them. The movie itself centers on Dorothy Shaw, that's Russell, and her best friend Lorelai Lee, that's Monroe. We realize that Lorelai has the suitor Gus Esmond Jr. This is Tommy Noonan. He's wound around her finger, and he is the son of a very wealthy man, and he showers upon her all kinds of great stuff. Rings, necklaces, wonderful clothes. We realize that Dorothy looks out for Lorelai, who she sees as kind of thick. In fact, Lorelai says a lot of silly things, which is a perfect affectation. She's the blonde of the duo, whereas Russell is the brunette. She's the short one in the duo, whereas Russell is the tall one. Both are quite buxom. Each is a particular form of white womanhood idealized by a certain part of the American population in the early 1950s, appealing erotically and otherwise to a certain segment of the audience. What Monroe does very, very well is come off like a fool, only we slowly realize she's a fool on purpose in order to get what she needs from the world, which is not always very kind to women. 
Further, we realize that Dorothy deeply loves Lorelai and wants to protect her from the fact that she knows men are predators and the prey are the women they want to take advantage of for sexual purposes and otherwise. All of this comes to a head when there is a bit of back and forth about whether Lorelai has stolen an important tiara that belongs to a diamond magnate who's built his career in South Africa. She hasn't. He's lied. She's put to skewer and brought to charges in a French courtroom but her friend Dorothy bails her out. Through the whole course of events, the father of Gus, Lorelai's would-be husband, has hired a private investigator. That's Ernie Malone, played by Elliot Reed. He is following these women aboard ship as they journey to Europe, trying to determine whether Lorelai is a gold digger. Ultimately, and this may come as no surprise, everything turns out just fine. We realize that Malone and Shaw are a perfect match. We realize that Gus and Lorelai are a perfect match, and the movie concludes with a double wedding. The two women in white gowns stand next to each other, the grooms on either side, and the camera pushes in to isolate the women with no men. The greatest love relationship of this movie is this female duo. They are fully devoted to one another, deeply love one another, and do a great deal of daring do to ensure the other's safety, even at the possible consequence of being put in prison. In other words, we can queer read this text as a female love story. On top of that, we can also queer read this text as a showcase for how women are indeed made fetish objects. Just look at the gowns the women wear. Just look at the way that they move and prance and the way they're framed to expose the curves of their hips and of their bosom. But we also are allowed to look at the world from their point of view and do the very same thing to certain men. In particular, they're traveling aboard ship to Europe and the whole journey there, they are on board with the track and field Olympic team from the United States. These young men haunt these women, trying to earn their favor, and in several memorable sequences, in particular one where Russell brings it down by walking through the gym where they're exercising. I can't play tennis, my golf's a menace, I just can't do the Australian crawl. And I'm no better at volleyball, ain't there anyone here for love? A bunch of men in flesh-colored trunks that barely cover their genitals are flexing, are throwing objects, are wrestling, while she is ogling them. And so is a portion of the audience who likes to stare at a mostly naked, handsome male body. So this movie is not just about these two women and whether they're gold diggers, and it's not just about whether men are preying on women. All of that's true, but it's also a female love story about two women who recognize what it is a camera wants to look at, which is them, but also what women like them and some men want to see, which is handsome men exercising and sweating in all of that business. And the movie is a complete catalog of wealth. We watched diamonds all over the place, including a set piece for Monroe, which became a signature of hers. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat mill. Grow cold as girls grow old And we all lose our charms in the end But 
square cut or pear shape These rocks don't lose their shape Diamonds are a girl's best friend This movie also allows the moviegoer to experience travel in a way that most people in the early 1950s had never been exposed to and certainly could not afford. And that is a glorious ocean liner with wonderful meals and wait service, a terrific number of amenities and all of the rest. And interestingly, the whole environment of this movie is produced inside of a studio space, even if we're meant to believe that we're outside. This is a triumph of production design and careful framing in order to make lighting sources seem like the sun or the moon and to make it appear that we're actually on an ocean liner. But I can promise you what this movie most of all does is let us escape the everyday qualities of our everyday lives. Even now, seeing it so many years after its initial release, this movie acts as a kind of a time capsule for the aspirational goals of a certain strata of American society circa the early 1950s. Importantly, this is also a screened version of a famous musical from Broadway from the year before, also called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was in turn the dramatization of a novel called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 1925, all of which were written by Anita Luz, who seemed to be a chronicler of the aspirant qualities of American life looking for the very best thing because that signifies the glory of being alive. Don't you know that a man being rich is like a girl being pretty? You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty, but my goodness, doesn't it help? And if you had a daughter, wouldn't you rather she didn't marry a poor man? But I was... You'd want her to have the most wonderful things in the world and to be very happy. Oh, why is it wrong for me to want those things? Well, I concede that... Say, they told me you were stupid. You don't sound stupid to me. I can be smart when it's important, but most men don't like it. Here's an image I want to leave you with. There is a scene when Gus has entered the stateroom of Dorothy and Lorelei while they're still in dock. They haven't yet left on their journey. Lorelei sits down on her bed and begins bouncing on it. Because they remain clothed and he remains standing, we know that it's simply a woman bouncing on a bed. But we know that we're meant to read that as something much more intense, which is why she knows that he's wrapped around her finger. Remember, honey, on your wedding day, it's all right to say yes. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.